0: Hello everyone uh welcome to another online power planners assembly um hopefully you've found us okay well clearly you have if you're here um but uh, i expect we might get a few people joining us having gone to crowdcast first of all um so we'll welcome them as it goes lots of people in the chat room which is great um if it's your first time with us great to have you along if you're an old timer then it's good to have you back again i'm going to start off by saying thanks to our supporters this year uh, that's our friends at Aegon, Barnett, Waddingham, Just, MNG, Wealth, Parmenian, Timeline, Transact, and WealthTime. Without their continued support, we just couldn't do these kind of things. These are very relaxed and interactive assemblies. Um, some of you are saying hello in the chat room already, which is great to see. Um, you can ask questions inside there. I'll keep an eye on the chat and bring them up as and when we go. Um, and we'll fire those, our experts, and, and see how they get on. Just to make sure that... Um, the chat's working. Uh, let's do a test. Can you pop in there? Have you put your Christmas decorations up yet? And if yes, what on earth are you doing? Um, so we'll see how that's going on there. Um, this is being recorded and a replay will be on our website um, pretty much later on this afternoon, probably. Just go to our resources page and you can find the event on there. And we've also got a podcast. Um, so if you want to listen to it when you're on the go, walking the dog or walking and running, whatever, you can download that and listen to it at your own preference. So today's event, um, at long last is our third time of trying on this one, Um, but we're third time lucky, which is good. I'm glad to see actually no one's put their decorations up so far, which is good. Um, So this is all about pensions and property, Uh, using a pension fund to buy property. That's always been a popular option with some clients. However, it's not always that common, and some of us para planners may not have been involved with it before, so that's why we're running today's assembly. And I'm really pleased to be joined by two experts from barnet Waddingham to share their knowledge and answers. I get them to introduce themselves. So, Rachel, to you, first of all, please.
1: Hi, thanks, Richard. Thanks, everyone. Um, my name is Rachel Geary. I work in the SAS team for barnet Waddingham and I am based out of our Liverpool office.
0: In the Liver building. Uh,
1: in the Liver building. So they have, have, have got on. the Christmas decorations off, though. Have they oh, <laughs> they <no>. have. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Um,
0: uh, Murray.
2: Yeah, Hi, I'm Murray Smith. I work in the SIP team, um, in the property part of the SIP team, um, and I work from our Glasgow office, although I'm in my shed in Edinburgh today.
0: (laughs) Well, a very warm welcome to you both. It's your first time. And I think it's Rachel's second time on this end, isn't it? It is. not it we have been with us before, but Murray's first time, so good to have you along. So today we're going to look at several issues. We're going to talk about why you'd want to have a commercial property in your pension in the first place. Um, you can do it via a SIP or a SAS. So what are they? What's the is, and why would you use one of those? We'll talk about the rules of holding property in a pension fund. Look at some technical and legal things you need to know. Um, look at some frequently asked questions, things that pop up time and time again. And we'll also look at what can go wrong and how to avoid it happening. So uh, nice little warning for you then. So uh, Rachel and Murray have prepared some slides for us. So I'm going to bring those up on the screen now. Um, they're going to talk us through them. You can download these from our website afterwards as well uh, as a good aid memoir um, or to refer back to in the future and pop any questions in the comment box there and I'll fire those up as we go. So, uh, Rachel, over to you.
1: Brilliant. Thank you. Hi, everyone. So, um, yes, we're going to be looking at property investment in SIF and SAS. And um, just to note, I'm not authorised to give financial advice. So this presentation is for guidance only. Um so today we're looking at property and one of the main questions we get posed is, you know, why bother using a pension? Am I just adding a further layer of complexity into conveyancing, which is already complex? Why should I do it? And sometimes clients will say, you know, I've already got my house and um, that's my pension. And when I come to retirement, I can sell it down, downsize and release cash, which is true. Um, Some clients also have property in their own right um, that they let, and again, they may use that as their kind of retirement vehicle. But today we're looking at how utilising your retirement wealth, either in a SIP or a SAS, um, via purchasing commercial property can really um, work quite well. But as Richard says, there are some pitfalls that we do need to kind of um, point out along the way. So the first and foremost is buying it through your pension scheme should be um, more tax efficient. So that should be music to everyone's ears. You know, the less tax you pay, surely the better. The more that you keep in your pocket is the more, you know, you've got for you and your family. Um, That said, there are things we need to consider. So just a bit of background on SIPs and sass So I'll cover off the SASS and then I'll, I'll bring in Murray to cover off the SIP. But these are broadly the same within each vehicle. So tax relief can come into the um, retirement vehicle and you're going to gain you know, tax relief on those contributions, sorry. Um, the rental income that's generated from that commercial property is not subject to tax, which is a big one. Um, another key one is if and when you choose to dispose of the property that growth or that gain um, isn't subject to capital gains tax so that's a huge win if you hold it personally you know um, we've seen how properties have you know grown infinitely year on year the prices are going up and up and up that could be a huge potential saving for your clients um we also have the benefits then of when members choose to access funds most members can take up to 25 percent of their pot tax free um, and they don't have to retire so you know it's not like you have to put on your slippers and your your flat cap and you you know start getting your knitting out and that's it you can't carry on working you can carry on keep um, accruing you know salary and contributions for your pension scheme you don't have to retire and another key facet as well of putting it in Particularly the SaaS is you're able to pass down um, and an liquid asset down the generations. It may be a really good tenant that you've got in there. It may be your own business, and actually having to sell it to either settle benefits or death benefits is not an attractive option. If it's in this pension wrapper, then you don't have to get rid of that. You know, really lucrative asset. You can cascade it down um, the generations, which is you know a key thing. Murray, is there anything else that you'd, you'd add there for the SIP or are you happy for me to, to carry on?
0: Oh, I think we've, we've lost Murray. Look at that. Okay, so I, first question, and he's run away.
1: I'll so he's run away. <laughs> I will carry on. But broadly, yes, particularly in the SAS, because that can be multi-member, multi-generations. The SIP um, is a bit more challenging, but it's not, you know, unachievable. Um, but we'll move on to death benefits So just as a broad overview, um, pensions are a trust and they're a trustee. So for the SAS, usually all of the members are trustees. They may have a professional trustee. They don't have to have one. For the SIP, the provider is generally the trustee and the sole trustee. So that's key to note. So when we're looking at risk appetite, um, how the property is to be managed, that level of control does differ between the two vehicles one thing to note um, which hopefully again ticks a box when you're looking at inheritance tax planning for your um clients is the sip and the sas is not part of um, the individual's estate so you know they can accrue that wealth and you don't need to worry about that for inheritance tax purposes at all So you can, you know, that's another tick in the box for, you know, saving, tax and preserving the the family wealth. Um, Income tax paid on funds prior to a member passing away before 75 is not subject to income tax at all. That's free of tax. Um, After 75, it's the recipient that pays um, marginal rate on the um, benefits paid to them. And pensions can be paid to non-dependents as well. So it doesn't have to be, it just needs to be the spouse. It can go to grown-up children. Um, you know, you, you do have that more flexibility since the pension freedoms came in. And as I say, you know, to summarize the assets can be passed to a spouse, partner, younger generations, um, free of tax, as in there's no capital gain um when they move move across. Um, it's only when you actually realize by taking income that is when that taxation position may or may not change obviously we've got the autumn statement coming up and hopefully we'll get a bit more meat on the bones of what that will mean in relation to death benefits because that's being um you know death benefit lump sum is going to be you know looked at and more details there so hopefully we can come back at a later stage and, and cover that off when we've got more details on that one but for today um tax on subsequent deaths in the scheme very very similar to the original member um It can flip and flop. So if member A, the original member, sorry, dies pre-75, benefits thereafter are not subject to tax. If the second member who inherited the pot dies post-75, their beneficiaries will be subject to their marginal rate. So something to bear in mind, it's not just the first death that kind of sets the uh, parameters. Each individual death thereafter is, is then looked at to see what the tax treatment would be. Um, so that that um, this ta- um, sorry this slide that Richard's showing now it kind of you know exemplifies that different change in between the taxation and hopefully when you review the slides you can you can see that in a nice um, visual form. So differences when using a pension. This is probably the biggest thing that comes up with members. Um, they often say, "But it's mine," and that is somewhat true. Um, You indirectly own it, but you don't personally own it. Your pension does, and the trustees that, you know, come with that, as I say, the SIP, it's usually the providers, the sole trustee, the SAS, usually the family, the directors, whomever. Um, Also, when we're looking at investments for the pension, commercial only is is tax efficient. So it would be, you know, residential will attract attract tax charges which would then negate any benefit of it of putting it in that tax beneficial wrapper of your sip or your sas so it's it you know certainly from our point of view if a client came and said residential then this so would be no and these are the reasons why you know the taxation would be horrendous um so it's, it's just not worth worth doing um SIP and SAS can borrow to facilitate a pension purchase or any, you know, fees thereafter. So there may be VAT, you know, um, conveyance fees, etc. But there are limits. So it's up to fifty percent of the net assets of the respective SIP or SAS. Um, When we're looking at the SIP or the SAS, the assets underneath it are ring fenced from any creditors. So if the members in their kind of with their personal hat on say fall into hard times um or the or the business does um the assets under the sas are ring fenced away so no no other kind of prying um hands can can get at them they are held on trust and that's why we have this um you know further um considerations we need to take into account when putting such an asset into a retirement vehicle such as a sip and a sas um As I noted before, where there is a professional trustee, so that will be always the case in relation to the SIP, um, they will need input and they will have to sign off on that transaction and agree to actually have that um, property bought into the retirement vehicle. And the biggest one as well that mainly clients will raise is connected party rules apply. So if you're buying the property from yourself or you're selling it to yourself or your company is going to let um take occupancy of the property or someone that you know that you're connected to is going to take occupancy the connected party rules in 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 place and you can't just go well i give my mate a good rate because ultimately the trustees are there to protect the um, beneficiaries and ultimately what they can draw from the pension fund so they should be looking to to get the best return on that particular um asset for the beneficiaries which the trustees may be at the first stage but the beneficiaries
0: just to summarize rachel on the connected party rules that basically means commercial terms must apply doesn't it as you said there's no mates rates going on here
1: absolutely yes so if a a ricks qualified surveyor is saying the property is worth one million there's no backdoor dealings of going well i'll either give you two million because you know ultimately the seller is my wife my spouse my friend um, and conversely, for buying it for less, so you can bump up when it gets revalued, your pension pot and your subsequent tax-free lump sum. Yes, risk qualified surveyor has to set the um, the purchase price where we're dealing with a connected party. Yeah. we had yeah. quite a
0: few questions sent in before we got started, actually, and I'm going to bring up a couple now because you've kind of touched on them already. The first one was: if I buy my business premises in my pension, do I have to pay rent?
1: You do. So that's that is the connected party rules. So um, we would expect an an appropriate lease to be put in place, the rental amount to be determined independently and then the tenant to adhere to that. Now, of course, particularly now we're we're coming out of the COVID world, um, if your um, business fell into hard times, just as you would for any third party landlord, you would enter in a negotiation to say, "Okay, times are tough. We can't actually pay the full going rate, but we can pay, you know, X, Y, and Z. And as long as that is backed up by um, an accountant saying actually, yes, they're not treating um, the pension scheme as a lesser than any other creditor. So you're not going, well, we're still paying dividends to ourselves, we'll still we're still paying everyone else. But for my own part, I'll put a pause on that because I'd rather do X, Y, and Z over here. As so long as it's all on commercial, it's all documented um we're fine so it's not so rigid but yes generally we do have to treat treat the tenancy as as we would any other third party
0: yeah i think that there's a hard line isn't it between the client and the pension scheme although they kind of yes. a lot of people see them as one and the same thing there's a definite hard line between the two they're separate legal entities and must be treated that way there was a follow-on question which i think you've you pretty much answered already such as could my pension scheme evict my business from my own property
1: yes it could um you know push comes to shove so one of the reasons i know we're not talking about loans today but sometimes clients will come and say for security can i use my own home as security the trustees don't want to be in a position where we have to kick them out of their own home to sell it the same for property you know if they're not paying the way they're not entering a dialogue um we'd have to get legal advice of course but yes potentially um the trustees need to be acting in the best interests of the ultimate beneficiaries, and if that means, you know, removing a, a tenant that either can't or won't pay, despite you know without any dialogue, and then looking to the market to go, okay, there are other tenants that can pay. Mm. Yeah,
0: Yeah. get out. And there's something that I've, I've come across a couple of times um, when you mentioned about the trustees have a. A responsibility to beneficiaries. A client will say, "Well, I am the beneficiary." Forgetting it, it's a discretionary trust that this pension sits inside, and it's not just someone that might draw retirement benefits; his death beneficiaries as well, isn't it? So it's 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 a bigger picture than that.
1: Absolutely, yes. It, it is difficult for clients to kind of put on the different hats, but I think when you're having those conversations, if you always kind of term it as, "Well, let's say if this was a third party." Would you be so generous? Would you be so lenient? If there was no dialogue, there would get a point where you'd go, actually, this isn't working anymore. and We need to, you know, look at other options. And And the same kind of attitude should be um, adopted, particularly when you're dealing with yourself, because you can. It's not just, you know, there's, there's a rental void, particularly. You could land yourself in um, hot water with the revenue if they deem that you're not treating that um, interaction on an arm's length basis. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so um, what do we allow? So I'll pass over to um, Maureen now because I've, I've spoken for a bit of, of what we um, of what we do allow. Um, just to note, because the SAS isn't an FCA-regulated product, the risk appetite of the investment profile of which property can you know come into um, is very much down to the trustees, and they don't have a professional trustee. But as Maureen will, will note now, where it's a SIP, it's a slightly different position.
2: Yeah so basically with a sip because the the pe- professional trustee is a registered owner of the property we're probably a bit more strict in what we do allow what we don't allow and um, because the professional trustee then carries a the risk of tax charges and things like that so um we only allow commercial properties as you can see from this list that does cover a lot of stuff it covers everything from forestry and woodland to um just a, a corner shop to Industrial units and things like that. We don't allow any residential property, with a few small exceptions. Um, things like a hotel, which has some a residential element to it, or a pub, which can have hotel bedrooms that it can rent out, or sometimes a a caretaker flat, um, which can be bought within the rules. But when you do that, you've got to be very careful that you're ticking all the right boxes, that you get the correct evidence for HMRC. You need to um, have contracts of employment that show that it's a requirement for people to stay in that, that residential part of the property. So it is very, very complicated, but from the legislation, HMRC's website, basically they say if it's suitable to be used as a dwelling, um then that's residential property they do as i say they, they do allow some exceptions to that but um any building or land any related land to that property so a garden you couldn't buy that um within your pension scheme you couldn't have a commercial unit built on the garden of your house like i know some people have done these things um, during lockdown where they've put little offices at the end of the garden you wouldn't be able to buy put that in your pension scheme um, because it would still count as residential property. Yeah,
1: I think one of the main things as well sometimes we get clients are going oh it is commercial um, but ultimately the only opinion that counts is that of HMRCs mm-hmm. um, and you know there may be times where we, we have to approach HMRC to get a ruling but ultimately it doesn't matter if I think it's resident I'm sorry I think it's commercial or you know the advice advisor the client it's in the eyes of, of HMRC um, which can which can sometimes differ which doesn't make planning any easier but it certainly um, keeps us on our toes so to yeah. say the least
0: definitely becca just put a good question in the chat so what about parade of shops with a flat above which leads us nicely onto these couple of examples you've got isn't it so if I, if I bring the first one up there if you want to talk us through that one
1: it is yes yeah. so um so the question here was would the would the image now being shown it, would that be allowable um and then there's another image as well where you know is is that allowable on the face of it shop flats above it mm. It all comes down to devil in the detail, unfortunately, um, as is is the case in in most instances. We need to see um, details of the layout. Generally, if there are two separate entrances and they're on two separate titles, generally we're okay. Um, But again, in particular to Becky's question, you'd, you'd need to find out more of the particulars. So the shop elements, potentially, yes as long as they are um, standalone and, you know, not part of the same property, if you will. And that slide there kind of um, covers that off. If there's any interconnected areas, um, if you kind of think of it as it, it contaminates effectively, there's no physical contamination, but if if kind of flows into another area, the revenue are wrapping it all up as, right, we're just going to class it all as, as residential.
0: Yeah, so exactly. we've got another question here for, from Richard. So, would it need a split title before it goes into the pension scheme?
1: Indeed, it would, Richard. Yes, um, and we have had clients who've gone through that and gone through the process of ensuring they've got their own access rights um, to the subs. You know, to the two different parts, splitting the title and then moving the um, the commercial part into the retirement vehicle and then maybe acquiring the person, the the residential part on a a personal basis. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I had one a few years ago where we had problems where um, the shop and the flat shared the services. Um, So the gas electric were shared, even though they'd split things out apart from that. And that that was a, no, we're not going to go with that one because it could be deemed as being, you know, the same thing.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I
2: say, sorry i was just going to say quite often what will happen is somebody will approach us with a property like that with the shop and the flats above and they'll get try and ask their pension scheme to buy the freehold of the property um but what we that's probably what we can't do what we they would then be able to buy the freehold personally um and the sip or sas could buy the leasehold interest of the, just the shop element
0: mm-hmm. While while we're on residential, and I know we've got a couple more slides, we've got one more question here from Michael, which I thought would come up. So, is it possible to buy a commercial property and then gain planning permission for conversion to residential without incurring a nasty tax charge?
1: There is, Michael, yes. Um, I think one thing the trustees should be mindful of is how quickly that plan permission is um, obtained. Because what the pension scheme can't be seen to be doing is trading. So it can't go, right, okay, I'm going to, ultimately, that's going to be flats or whatever it's going to be. At the moment, it's commercial and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z and, you know, benefits in that way. Um, so just bear that in mind. There's a, there is a trading consideration there. Um, but yes, we certainly have had clients who have commercial property um, run the the business front for years and then look to obtain planning permission to either convert it to residential and yes the retirement um, vehicle can obtain it but it's at that point it really should be um, taken out of the pension wrapper just to avoid any um, potential taxation or scrutiny yeah. from the revenue I should say.
2: And yeah, we would not allow any work. <laughs> so I was just going to say we wouldn't allow any work to be carried out towards the conversion. They can obtain the planning permission, but that's the point at which it'd have to be sold. You can't actually
0: do any of the conversion work before you sell it. Mm. So we've got a bit more non-residential, haven't we? So I'll, I'll let you take us through these.
1: Yeah. So um, it just summarises really. So residential? At the question broadly, yes. I think it's um, it's a very um, you know it's an area you need to tread lightly on um as murray referenced before there are certain carve outs that that can be admitted the caretaker flats and um, if it's integral to um the running of the business so it could be you know um the pub landlord has to sleep above the pub for security reasons etc and um, it could be tax efficient but again proceed with caution i think would be the, the best line of advice um and as Murray also referenced, freehold where there's a residential is a no. So the member could do that personally, and then the respective CIP or SAS own the, the leasehold elements subject to different titles, different entrances, etc., all all, planning, all all panning out. Um, <clears throat> so again, that's summarizing that there. So the company could buy the freehold, the individual could buy the freehold. Um, And then the the SIP or the SAS can acquire the commercial elements on a long leasehold basis. And the the residential then is effectively carved out. But again, it's complicated. So if you have got any clients in that position, um, engage with, you know, your respective provider early on to make sure that all those kind of um, dots and crosses can be crossed off and you're not left with a headache at the end of it. Mm -hmm.
0: Then we've got halls of residence somewhere, a bit more um, detail on these.
1: Yeah. Uh, do you want to go on this one, Maury, first and then I'll, I'll Yeah,
0: sure. Um,
2: halls of residence are something that's stated in the pension tax manual that you can purchase, but it does have to be like an official hall of residence recognised by the university. Um, so it, they tend to be much bigger buildings um, with lots of smaller units within them. It doesn't quite often we get approached by somebody trying to buy basically student flats which are uh, which are not allowed they're still considered residential so it's only official halls of residence that are recognised by universities that you can purchase in a a sip of a sas
0: was interesting there was one of the bullet points there about um, it's got to be for the same uh, educational establishment um i didn't know that because i know from personal experience one of my kids was in one of these buildings and there were different students from different universities inside there um which uh you know, might have been a bit of a flag mightn't it so yes. not so good that yeah. one hmm.
1: okay so um so yeah i don't think you know putting or considering putting com- proper commercial property into a civil assassin's is so laden with pitfalls that it's, you know, um, unachievable. It's not, and it still does have the same flexibilities as, um, or broadly as similar to acquiring it individually. So the, the, the SIP or the SAS can still borrow from a bank. It can still have part ownership, um, listed properties is interesting. So I'll cover off on the, on the SAS side and I'll let, I'll let Murray cover, cover off on the, on the SIP side, um so for our for, I say our SAS, it's not SAS are individuals. So where we look after SAS schemes, um we will look at it on a case by case basis. Um and that's generally, you know, it's the provider who will say yay or nay. Um even if even if it's deemed commercial property, if it's listed because of the further implications of that carries with it and the cost implications and you know we've got to do such and such to keep it up to date or works or etc etc because of that liability um the professional trustee certainly in the SAS instance could say no even if you know the revenue would say oh yes it is commercial that listed status does um give it more complexity as it would if you were buying it outside of the pensions wrapper as as well
2: Yeah, when when, when we're buying a listed building within a SIP, we're very careful to make sure that um, we get the surveyor to check if there's been any alterations to the building, that anything's had approval, um, listed building's approval, Um, because when it's the SIP again, it's the trustees that own the property, the registered owners, it's the trustees that can be held liable, effectively, for um, like a lift, if somebody send you a listed building enforcement notice, so you've got to make changes to the property. And if those changes aren't made, which can be difficult for the the SIP trustee because they're not actually located at the building, um, then the the trustees could effectively face criminal charges for that. So it is something we're very careful to check when we do buy a listed building, that all the work that's been carried out to date has all been done correctly and with the right permissions.
1: Absolutely. I think the key, um, therefore, if if your client's in that position is one, certainly engage with your provider early on. And two, when you're looking for solicitors, um, make sure, you know, they're au fait with dealing with SIPs and SASs and the the, the added layer of complications that that can bring just to, you know, iron out any of those considerations that, that Murray highlighted there just so you know you're not incurring fees for something that's something that's kind of dead in the water before you've even started um so just summarize there so yes scheme can buy property via an auction that's stressful let's put it that way because of that kind of pre-due diligence you need to do to make sure it's a tax efficient investment um so there you know i would certainly say unless it's vanilla commercial anything else at, at, at auction um would be very hard work and potentially well, who know,
0: actually puts the bid in though? Because it's when the gavel goes down, it's a legal contract, isn't it? So it who has got to be there.
1: It is. So generally, it's the member trustee. Um, we've we've literally just had one. Um, well, he was at the auction last week. Thankfully, it was you know plain vanilla. Um, so we we're sending the funds this week. But yes, because that is binding. You're quite right, Richard they kind of need to engage really early and get the kind of the um, information pack if you will and make sure you go through that to make sure there's nothing hiding that could inadvertently you know cause an issue later down the line.
2: Yeah sometimes when we're purchasing at auction through a SIP we'll actually ask the member or we'll explain to the client that they'll actually have to enter into the contract in their own name and it's only if well, that's if we've not had time to do all the checks, the due, the due diligence. And so that they then carry the risk. If the SIP can't buy it for whatever reason, if it finds some sort of issue with it, then they personally have to be liable for them for, um, concluding that contract. Yeah,
1: yeah. yes, yeah. exactly. Could be very costly. Yeah. So not something to be entered into lightly. So we don't see very, very many um, at auction, but it is a possibility. Yeah. Um, And as we referenced, you know, before, yes, the trustees can develop the property, um, VAT can be supported, um, freehold, leasehold, multiple tenants, you know, all all of the usual kind of parameters you would expect, um, the SIP or the SAS can cater for them. And I think we've got more detail on them coming up in the next.
0: Yes, we certainly have.
1: Okay, so um, borrowing, as I mentioned earlier, 50% of the net assets of the fund. Is the limit so bear that in mind for any. Um, if you've already got borrowing, you know that needs to come off, and then what's left, you know, take that into account. Rachel, we uh, had a
0: question sent in on this one as well, oh, um, yes. which basically I'm a bit confused on the 50% of the net fund limit. Is that 50% after the property purchase or 50% before the property purchase?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I suppose it depends. If we need the borrowing to acquire the property, it'd be before if we if we required the property and we need it for renovation works um then yes we could include it as an asset because we've actually purchased it but yeah we can't account for it when it's not yet on our books, so to speak yeah brilliant, thanks yeah um so usually when the borrowing's set up um the bank will put a charge over the property so again that's one of the due diligence pieces to make sure there's no borrowing on the property or if there has that legal charge been has been discharged so the trustees aren't inadvertently picking that up um yes bear in mind costs as well so the, the there could be vat there could be um there will be surveillance um, conveyance and costs professional fees etc so all that needs to come in that 50 percent. there's not an extra pot for Fees, fees, borrowing—it's got to—it's got to be all encompassed, um, and liquidity is key, as we know, cash is king. Um, so, kind of swallowing all that up, because ultimately, if there is borrowing, the trustees will need to have to facilitate the repayments on that. And if there's going to be a void period, if there's renovations before a tenant can be secured, that is something to bear in mind. You don't want to erode all your liquidity.
0: Yeah, I've seen quite a few cases where people haven't quite taken on board all the costs that are involved and borrow up to the hill, but don't allow for those. And I know we're not going to delve into VAT in a lot of detail today, but I just wanted to bring that up because that's the one area I see people get more confused about than anything else. Um, so uh, in fact this is triggered by Richard's put a question mm-hmm. in the chat there. So why have VAT registered going into a pension when the fund isn't trading? So could, could you just oh, the hard task? Very briefly, um, explain when or when not a painter scheme is registered for VAT.
1: Okay, I'll I'll try my very best and then I'll pass over to Murray to to, to rescue me, I think. (laughs) Um, So usually when a scheme is registered for VAT is when they're acquiring a property that's already opted for VAT. And the seller is going to be charging VAT on that sale price. So if you buy it, then if you're registered for VAT, then you can reclaim that element. The, the impact there is future tenancies you're going to have to charge VAT on and then you have to pay across the revenue that, you know, their, their portion. So that's how it kind of comes about. So what we do see is when um, clients have, for whatever reason, um, got rid of their commercial property, there's no aspirations to go down that avenue again. The scheme at that point, um, certainly for the SAS side, will be deregistered for VAT to stop that um, onward returns um, needing to be done. Mm-hmm.
0: So you, if the property is registered for VAT, you've got no choice. You've got to be VAT registered. You can't just say, I'm just going to remove the VAT. But if the property isn't registered for VAT that you're buying, you don't have to register. Is that right?
2: You don't but you don't actually have to register even if the property is registered for VAT. It just means that your pension scheme would have to pay the VAT on the cost, but it wouldn't be able to reclaim it. Mm-hmm. Um another thing you can do though, if you're buying a property like an investment property that already has a sitting tenant, like you could buy a Greg's or some a, a Greg's outlet that has Greg sitting in it. Um so if there's an existing lease in place and that property registered for VAT you can then buy that property as a transfer of going concern, which means you don't actually have to pay the VAT on the purchase price so that the SIP wouldn't have to fund that. It would still have to collect VAT on the rent in the same way and pass that on to HMRC and charge VAT on the sale of the property. But again, unless that property was being sold as a transfer of a going
0: concern with a lease in place. Mm. Yeah, it's great. I think we could do a whole hour on VAT. Not not that we get many viewers, maybe, but um, I think we'll uh, we'll move on from that. (laughs) So
1: So just touching back on those um, connected tenant issues that we highlighted at the very start, um, it's the different hats that clients will sometimes wrestle with here. Um, So, yes, you can let the premises back to your own company. Of course you can. Um, The key thing here is to be able to demonstrate that that, um, transaction is being conducted on an arm's length basis. Um, so that would mean a lease. That would mean the rent being set out by a risk qualified surveyor. It would mean a commercial rate, uh, commercial terms to the lease. Um, and as we said earlier, if the, the tenant then can't kind of pick and choose, okay, well, this month I'm going to pay rent, next month I've got some expenses, so I'm not going to um they need to be sticking to to the lease and engaging um with the trustees if there are any barriers to doing so um because not doing so can lead to um tax charges mm-hmm. for the trustees which again it's it's a di- it's a different hat again um but ultimately it's going to detriment that the benefits that they can um draw and if it's to a company said company in question um because they're getting a benefit, could be exposed to to tax charges um, and not paying the rent. Be, so in the jargon, it's classed as an unauthorised payment. Um, and it's a scheme administrator that's obliged to report one, report it to HMRC. And part of that liability does fall back on the scheme administrator. So for the SAS, that could be the member trustees themselves. It could be the company um, as scheme administrator a different entity or it could be the professional trustee so i know Murray, the sip side is is more clear than the, the sas side on that point yeah scheme that's right that,
2: that we're always a scheme administrator basically the, the pension provider barnett Waddingham, would be the uh, scheme administrator for all the sips so we'd always be subject to the scheme sanction charge
0: and that's which right, is why yeah. we're so careful yeah Yes, yeah, far more an example to explain why you're careful. So,
1: well, yeah, just looking at the figures here. Yeah. So, the, so they kind of hit you in, in in a few ways. So, there's the unauthorized payment surcharge, which is forty percent. So it says here the company, so that's the tenant who's not paying effectively. Um, scheme sanction charge then ranges depending on how quick it's settled from fifteen percent up to forty percent. So that's potentially eighty percent of that amount of rent that's not being paid as a charge which you know is could be a huge sum um, if we're looking at you know a, a larger unit that could command you know very significant rental yield um, and ultimately you know the, the biggest risk potentially is that the revenue could turn around um, and say actually we're, we're deregistering the scheme. We're not giving you any exemptions anymore everything that's in there now is subject to a tax charge um which would be disastrous to say the least so you, sometimes it, it may feel um that, that the belt and braces approach isn't as as fast as you would like but i hope you appreciate kind of pulling out these nuances and you know the the potential pitfalls um, you can see why you know providers such as ourselves do need to proceed with, with caution um, to avoid that outcome for your clients and this is a nice work exa- there's a worked example in the in the um, in the pack as well which you can look at, at your leisure and we'll we'll look and move on to now um, we've kind of talked on listed properties um but we'll look at contamination risks, asbestos and then EPCs as, as well, just the kind of other other things to consider. So if we're happy with our commerciality, we now need to consider these these next um, okay. areas as well.
0: I'll skip past the list of property slide if that's OK, because you've talked quite yeah. a bit about that already and go on to EPCs.
1: Yeah, we have. Um, and again, you know, the solicitor will also be in, involved in highlighting these elements to the, to the trustees. So energy performance certificates, no doubt you're aware. Um, so they've been around, well, compulsory since April 2018. Um, and any bro- properties bought or sold or let require a rating of E before the transaction um, is begun. So sometimes when we either, you know, we've got a property ourselves that we're looking to sell, if there's works that need to be done you know in a planning position it, you know you may think oh it's an expense to get an EPC we're not doing anything now EPCs valid for 10 years and it may be wise actually just to check in on that point and go okay we may not be planning to sell today or let it today but if we are what's the position are there any remedial works that we could do now what are the costs um to make sure we don't jeopardize a future sale or a future tenancy um it's you know it's worth bearing it in mind and those rates are going up um but i've just read so from 2025 the minimum rating needs to be a a rating of a c Mm. um and there is a spending cap on the amount that they're expecting trustees to you know invest in their properties to bring it up to those levels and some properties do have exemptions listed properties being one of them um obviously bare land you, you know you can't insulate that that is what it is so that but that would be exempt um but with our with the uk's government commitment recommitment to net zero by 2050 i believe the epc um uplift is is being put on pause but i can certainly come back and confirm that point uh, but it's just something to um yeah bring, bear in mind you may see it as a cost but it could save you later down the line. Do you want to cover off um, the contamination and the asbestos um, parts, Murray?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, when we're doing our due diligence on a property, this is some of the reports that we'll ask the solicitor to get for us. Um, the contaminated land report, basically we, we ask for a desktop report which shows the risk of that property now this is based on sort of all mapping data that the solicitor can get the reports themselves usually cost about 100 200 pound um but they'll say on them quite clearly the level of risk applying to that property from the mining from contamination and it's just another consideration that the trustees have to have um, when they're going to be the registered owner of the property we have seen examples in the past where the owners of a property have been held liable for contamination of the land that was caused by previous owners so it's the current owners that pay even if they didn't do any of the contamination And if if it affects water tables and things like that and surrounding houses then the remedial costs for this can run into millions of pounds Um, it can be quite scary what we tend to do if uh, environmental risk has been identified with a property We give the clients the option of, well, they can either proceed and go to, like, take a lot further look at it and get soil samples taken and get them analysed to see if the contamination risk is actually real or not. Or you can get environmental indemnity insurance. Um, The cover we would ask uh, is, like I think it's a minimum of £3 million cover. And that cover usually lasts for 20 years, or some some cases it just lasts indefinitely. So that cover will be in place for the whole time the property's in the pension scheme. Um, depending on the size of the property, that actual indemnity cover can cost from maybe £1,000, £2,000. It's not huge when you consider the period that it covers and actually the risk that it protects the, the trustees
0: of the scheme from. I think the big thing I find with these is the time these can take sometimes, isn't it? Um, yeah, that that's People right. don't factor into the process. So often you find, people say, I found this property, I want to exchange contracts in four weeks, you know, buy it through a pension scheme, I want to borrow some money, VAT, you know, environmental research, all that kind of stuff. It takes a lot of time, doesn't it? So, um, that's right, yeah. Yeah, take that into account.
2: And again, with asbestos, um, there's... Well, since 2000, they they stopped the use of asbestos in in properties. But before that, um, unfortunately, it was quite prevalent and it does cause a lot of problems. We always ask for an asbestos report to be carried out if the property was built prior to 2000 Um, and if there's any levels of... Well, the asbestos report will explain if there is asbestos containing materials within the property, the level of risk associated with them and whether that risk can be managed just by leaving the everything as it is, and you have to carry out annual reports and things like that, um, or if the actual asbestos needs to be removed. And if it does need to be removed, you actually have to get specialist contractors in to remove it, get a certificate that explains that it's all been removed properly. Um, we would always ask that f- from a SIP perspective, if there is asbestos that needs to be managed in place, that there's an asbestos management plan is put in place and that explains who the asbestos duty holder is. And basically it has to be somebody else other than the the SIP trustees or um, we would ask the member trustee to take on that duty. Because if the property at any point is unoccupied, it would then fall upon the owners if there's not a named asbestos duty holder in
0: place. Yeah, brilliant. That's, that's always a bit of a flag whenever I see those asbestos ones come up. So, yeah, one to watch out for. Right, in the last 10 minutes, we are going to look at the, the nine steps uh, to buy a property and what can go wrong. So, let's start with the nine steps, Shuri.
1: Okay, so this is quite um, uh, a nice summary of, you know, the, the various stages if you're considering um, a client with, you know, commercial property aspirations and whether that's going to fit for their retirement vehicle. So, first and foremost, and I'm sure this is bread and butter, um Financial feasibility. So evaluation should be considered an essential part of the the purchase process, particularly if the vendor's connected party, as we referenced earlier. Um, Consider how the purchase is going to be funded. Is there any borrowing that's needed? Um, Has the scheme got sufficient cash to be able to do it on its own right, allowing for those fees, legal fees, stamp duty, VAT, um, anything of that nature that may also be associated So, certainly for the SAS side, and Muriel coming on the SIP side, because we're not FCA regulated and we are, you know, we just operate in a different way, um, SAS clients are free to choose a solicitor of um, their preference. Um, Same with the surveyor and same with their banking needs. Um, We do have panel solicitors and they are more au fait with transactions of this nature include you know incorporating SIPs and SASs but we don't put a hold on a client engaging on a a, um, a solicitor of their choice they just need to bear in mind that they should be content that they're happy to you know negotiate and um, guide the trustees through the transaction in in the best way is that the same for the the, the SIP side Murray
2: it is at the moment at the moment we do allow our clients but we're from first of December actually Um, we're introducing new rules where we're going to insist that our panel solicitors are used um, but that's only where a client doesn't have a financial advisor, are actually because of consumer duty regulations we're putting a lot more regulation in place ourselves, we're putting a a few more uh, guardrails in place to protect clients protect them from themselves unfortunately where they don't have a financial advisor making the recommendations we're going to make it are just a bit less risky for them basically by insisting that our solicitors are used by maybe limiting the amount they can borrow as well. I know it's at the moment it's fifty percent of the fund, but for unadvised clients, um we're going to limit that to actually twenty-five percent of the property value just to make sure that the property is generating enough income to cover all its costs. Yeah. That's
1: what the consumer duty um um hat on in mind as well just to make sure that you know even though yes the schemes you know these particular schemes have the flexibility ultimately is it right for 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 the client to you know go down that path um as i said before engage with um your provider so we have property purchase questionnaires that we um need to do a, a quick review and then we can go into more detail um, as Murray referenced, um, environmental issues, so if there is asbestos, um, who's the duty manager, what plan's in place, um, has the EPC position been um, reviewed, and is that all okay to secure a tenant? Um, VAT we've already touched on. I would say, you know, we're not experts in VAT, so your clients should be engaging with their accountants or their tax advisors on on that point. Um, just to make sure it is the right option for them to do, reviewing the legal documents, you know, that that's kind of the usual um conveyance and peace. Sometimes clients go, Oh, you're doing a sign and a piece of paper. <laughs> and you're like, Yes, you know, tangibly, that's what you can see, but you'll see there's a lot of com- complexity to get actually get to that stage to make sure um, you know, no one's gonna be left holding the holding the baby that um they didn't plan for. Um just as a normal property, you know, insurance should be put in place ahead of completion. You know, touch wood, nothing untoward happens. But if it did, that would then protect the trustees. Um, and then finally, making sure that the lease um, is put in place between the pension scheme um, or the existing leases assigned from the current um, landlord to the, to the new landlord being the pension scheme.
0: Brilliant. So let's talk about what could go wrong. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, Go on,
2: we've had a lot of experience of things that have gone wrong. unfortunately generally what goes wrong or what leads to things going wrong is clients not getting in contact with their super sas provider and keeping them informed of what's going on at the property making changes to the property without letting us know um rent arrears is, is can be a big issue when it's connected party because then you can get all the tax charges um but i mean we've had things going wrong in the past like um we've discovered one of our commercial commercial properties um on airbnb being let out as a holiday let which is obviously something that's not permitted um we've had clients that have changed the use of the property um we had one that was actually it was use class as a hotel so if it did have a residential element to it but then they were advised by their local council to change that use to, I think, I can't remember, it was some sort of fitness retreat. And while that was fine for the local council and it maybe saved them a bit of their business rates, it actually meant that the property no longer met the exemption that it needed to be held within a pension scheme and suddenly the whole thing became taxable property. So there is a lot of things that go wrong, but the best thing, I think, in all situations is um, just to keep in contact with your SIP and SAS provider or get, make sure your clients do and make sure that they make them aware of any changes that they want to make to um, the property or just don't do anything without speaking to the, the
0: experts first, if you like. Yeah, like a lot of things in our lives, communication is key, isn't it? Um, Absolutely. To stop this yeah. um, yeah. I had a lot of questions and comments about rent not being paid. And we've got mm. a couple of examples here, haven't we, about um, you know what void periods can mean.
1: We have, yes, and unfortunately it can be a bit of a, a domino effect. Um, Depends on you know the particular scheme in question, but where we've got borrowing, where we've got um, members in receipt of income, um, you know the domino effect and the impact there c- can be quite considerable. Um, so this kind of sets out you know a, a, an example scenario of um, you know a new scheme being a new SAS being established, directors pulling the pension well to one million. They've got company offices, they've had it valued at 1.3. Um, so they can acquire it, but they do need to gain that borrowing of the 300,000, um, which they can do. They buy they buy the premises, um, the benefits on the company, you know, they get that, um, the rent, sorry, a company expense, so they get tax relief on that. So, you know, it's all very hunky-dory and when it works, it, it does work really, really well. Um, Unfortunately, though, there's always um another side to the coin when things perhaps don't always go well. Um, so just on the ne- next slide, um let's say the said company now it's run into financial difficulty, their markets change, or maybe, you know, heaven forbid, not of another world pandemic, but you know, something out of the blue that they couldn't plan for has come along. Um so not only are the the directors impacted through their, their company, the dividend income has been effectively switched off. Um, consequently the rental um, responsibilities can't be met so that's not just only you know okay the rents can't be met but that's the compound future growth in that tax free wrapper that's also being impacted and suffered furthermore if it's if it's really that bad and cash flow is you know really tight within the the pension wrapper um, if the borrowing can't be serviced The bank could threaten to call on security, which is the, you know, the office premises from which they operate. Um, and you know, we're we're in a kind of a world of pain. And if there were pensioners in the scheme, there's no, there's no liquidity. There's nothing to pay them from. So that, that would have to cease. Um, and then yes, we can get in this position where we have differing viewpoints of let's just get rid of the property. It's a pain. I don't want to, then we have trustee disagreements. Um, Obviously, in the, the SIP side, it's it, it, I'm not saying it's not as complex, because it is, um, but certainly where SAS clients, there's different generations, perhaps different aspirations, trustee disagreements, unfortunately, is one of the um, the biggest challenges we, we come up against.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we don't get that be... as often. Sorry, I was going. Yeah, we don't get that as often in SIP, but it does happen as well when you can have properties with joint owners, like Mm. lots of individual SIPs owning a property, and especially when they're directors of a company, maybe enter into everything in good faith, but Mm. there can be fallouts over the years, um, which can lead to difficulties. Yeah,
0: and even without some of those financial implications on that slide, there, when people fall out, trying to unwind Mm. that can get very, very messy indeed and cost a lot Mm. of money. Um, So beware. Um, is a key thing there, but yeah. uh, right, we're nearly out of time. So we've got just a, a quick kind of summary slide that pulls it all together there, which I won't, I won't get you to go through because I think we've covered all those points there um, in a lot of detail, but that'd be a really good summary slide that we can um, uh, have people download in the pack. We, we have had um, quite a few questions we haven't had time for, unfortunately. So what I'm gonna do is uh, I'm gonna ask Rachel and Murray, if they wouldn't mind if I collate those and send them over to you, perhaps you can give us some bullet point answers. Yeah. we will pop those up on, on the website um, and then people can read the Q&As on there um, for those we didn't get time for today. um But that's it. That was flown by, isn't it? I'm really glad that uh, our third attempt, we got there um, and managed to do this one. It, it's a bit of a niche area of financial planning. So not every paraplanner is going to have come across this, but there's plenty of schemes out there, both SAS and SIP. Uh, that do have commercial property inside them. So we hope we found that very useful. Um, if you want to keep the conversation going, the Big Ten's always open. So pop over there, ask questions, answer them. Totally up to you. Massive thank you to Rachel and to Murray for sharing your expertise and for being persistent in actually getting this to happen today. So big thanks for that. Um, Big thanks, as always, to our supporters. That's our friends at Aegon, Barnett, Waddingham, Just, mg Wealth, Parmenian, Timeline, Transact, and Wealth Time. Thanks for all your questions and comments. I'm glad that no one's got their Christmas decorations up yet, apart from the Liver building, so shame on them. Um, and a replay is available on our website very soon. But from us, uh, it's goodbye, and thanks for watching. Bye.
1: Bye.
2: Thanks. Bye-bye.